Ephesians chapter 4. So good to have everyone this morning. One of the dangers of expository preaching, which I have not always, which I have not always been innocent of, is that you can get bogged down in a text to where you kind of begin to lose what the context or what the text is saying, and that is something I do not want to be guilty of in this fourth chapter of Ephesians. So I covet your prayers, and I know you have been praying for me, and I appreciate that. But um, to be honest with you, like I've told you before, these verses in Ephesians chapter 4, especially these verses here beginning in verse 20, down to 24, have answered many questions which have lingered in my heart and mind over the past 37 years as a Christian. Not one distinct question, but many questions that have lingered for a long time. Questions relating to the importance and great significance of sanctification in the believer's life. Where does it really play a role? How significant is sanctification in the believer's life? What role do they play and what role does Christ play if we even have a role in sanctification? And how very closely sanctification is related to the believer's eternal security and assurance of our own divine election. When I was first introduced to the doctrines of grace, I struggled with the doctrine of sanctification for a while because once you get overwhelmed or you begin to see the overwhelming blessings of God's sovereign grace and election and salvation is of the Lord, you begin to look at other aspects of the Christian life and say, well, how, how does those other truths concerning the Christian life reflect on the uh, divine election of God? I always felt as a believer that there was some kind of responsibility on the part of the believer, but trying to identify where that fits in the doctrine of God's sovereign grace uh, was a struggle for me. How much of sanctification is uh, are there, it's a responsibility of the believer, and how much of it is of God, and where do we play a role in that? And uh, many times I was often confused because I was concerned that I would be trying to make sanctification a work of the flesh and not a work of the Spirit. I always knew that sanctification was a work of the Spirit, and, and yet I would look at my life as well as other believers' lives, and I would wonder why some seem to advance more in sanctification than others. Others seem to have little regard for it, while others highly regarded it. And I don't know about you, but that often confused me. Well, Ephesians chapter 4 has answered a lot of those questions. And it has been a tremendous source of blessing to me. And I hope and pray that I could be a blessing to you this morning. Because I know there's a lot of people that might disagree some with what uh, I'm going to preach this morning on sanctification. But uh, I believe it's biblical. I believe it's scriptural. And I believe the believers have a vital role in their sanctification. 
God does not force us, but he does compel us by his salvation, his grace, and his love, and his mercy. Lord Jesus, I long to be whiter than snow. When God's saving grace regenerates the heart of a sinner and places with him the Spirit of God, there immediately begins to arise in him a desire to be more like Christ. To be holy as God is holy. I believe Paul intends this or means this with these words in Ephesians 4, uh, verse 20 and 21, when he says, But you have not so learned Christ, if so be. With these words, the Apostle Paul seems to imply that there were some amongst the believers at Ephesus who professed to have known or learned of Christ, yet in reality had never been taught of Him. For Christ himself declared in one of the parables, there are many who see, yet see not, who hear, yet hear not, neither do they understand. And I believe Paul has kind of put these three words, like those three words in Peter, he's kind of put these three words in here so that each and every professing believer at Ephesus, ourselves included, would question ourselves, have you truly learned of Christ? If so be that you've learned of Christ, he goes on to say, and have heard of him, been taught of him as the truth of Jesus, that you put off concerning. This is what Paul is saying. We've learned of Christ. Have you learned this? Have you learned about putting off the former conversation of the old man? Have you learned about being renewed in the spirit of your mind? Have you learned about putting on the new man, which is after God created in righteousness? Verse 25, wherefore, if you have then, putting away lying. And he goes on to this whole list of things here in chapter 4 of what we should be doing as believers in regards to our sanctification, because this is what Christ has taught us. If you've been taught of Christ, this is what you're going to practice. But evidently there were some there who professed to know Christ, yet in reality we're never taught of Him. Beloved, let us never be content with the knowledge of Christ that has no work of grace in the soul. A knowledge that rests in a bare speculation of the things of Christ. And not a knowledge accompanied with the grace of faith and love. A knowledge which the Bible said puts a man upon doing even the will of God from the heart. The psalmist said it best in Psalm 119.34. He said, give me understanding and I shall keep thy law. <laughs> he admits, without you giving me understanding, I can't keep it. He said, but if you give me understanding, I'll keep it. Yea, I shall observe it with my whole heart, but only as you give me understanding. So you see, he realizes and recognizes God must give him understanding, but he also realizes and recognizes that he must observe to keep it. To do it. He also says in Psalm 119.32, I will run the way of thy commandments. Not walk, not crawl. I'll run. I'll run. I'll briskly, I'll fervently, vehemently. I'll run the way of thy commandments. 
when thou shalt enlarge my heart. You see, he recognizes God has to enlarge his heart, but he also recognizes that when God does, he'll run in those commandments. Do you see how grace works in the heart of the believer? Grace is that which inspires and motivates us not to do nothing, but to do everything. And such is the desire and longing of all those who have truly learned of Christ. For like the psalmist, it's only when we have truly heard and been taught of Christ that we will run, we will keep, we will observe with our whole hearts the lessons we have learned of Christ. Christ here, Paul says, teaches us to do something. Not on our own power, not on our own strength, but to do something because he's taught it to us, because grace dwells in us. What is it then that Christ has taught us? What is it that we have heard and learned of him? Well, this is what Paul says, if you've learned of him. Listen to what he says in verse 22 to 24, that you put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust. Now, I want to get ahead of myself, but I want you to see that he puts the responsibility to us, that ye, that ye, Christ has taught you, ye put off. It doesn't say God will do it for you. I want to emphasize that. I'm getting ahead of myself, but that's what he's saying. He's laying the responsibility of this upon those who've been taught of Christ, that ye, and be renewed, verse 23, in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Again, he puts the responsibility on us. Ye need to put the old man off, but you also need to put the new man on, but you can't do that until you've had a renewing of the spirit of your mind. You see how, how grace wonderfully works in the heart of the believer. You almost think Paul would be an Armenian right now. <laughs> but he's not. Notice, first of all, that though Christ teaches us the work or task at hand, Paul says, is ours. Put it off. That ye put off, that ye put on, that ye be renewed in the spirit of your mind. The teacher and the teaching are divine. Thus securing and guaranteeing the believer in the work. Let me say that again. The teacher and the teaching are divine. Thus securing and guaranteeing the believer in the work. In other words, God would ask us something to do unless he enabled us to do it. Big difference. If you've been taught of Christ. This is really what, uh, over the last week or two weeks, especially over the last few days, I've pondered in my heart, especially looking over the last 37 years of my Christian life and, 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 and looking at all the people I've known and people I've ministered to, even in my own life, wondering and thinking and pondering in my heart, how many have really been taught of Christ? One can profess a lot. Yet if we're taught of Christ, we're taught to do. Teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes. The psalmist said in 119.33, teach me. Sounds like Paul here. What have you been taught? Teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes. Why would he want that? Why would he desire that the Lord teach him? 
and I shall keep it unto the end. You see the balance again? You teach me, and God, I'll keep it. Pink said the best when he said, I believe in the sovereignty of God and the servitude of man. <laughs> Beloved, there's a lot of confusion concerning the doctrine of believers' sanctification and his role, if any, they say, in it. Yet such confusion can only lead to much heartache and sorrow for the true believer, but could also affect the measure of the believer's assurance of salvation as well as our zeal to persevere. If you don't understand sanctification, you're going to be confused. It is vital for the believer to understand the place of sanctification in our, in our Christian life and what role it plays even in understanding and being sure of our election. Like we said last week, sanctification verifies, certifies our election. Don't tell me you're elect and you live like the devil. It's impossible. They're closely knit together, and I believe a lot of our brethren who are unfortunately ignorant in this, they're confused about both of them and they're so afraid they're going to sound too Arminian that they, they want to explain themselves all the time. Like we said yesterday, seems like people want to explain it. And the Lord said, I'm not going to explain it, it's just true. The Bible teaches that. The Lord said that. If you abide in me, you have to abide in him. If you don't abide in me, you can do nothing. But later on he says, if you abide in me, you bring forth much fruit, and the world will see your fruits and they'll glorify your Father in heaven. You're going to bring forth much fruit. There's evidence. There's evidence of divine election. There's evidence of God saving us. There's evidence of that, and that evidence is seen in our sanctification. There are basically three different teachings or beliefs concerning the believer's sanctification. Which one? Only one is scriptural. But I want to give them to you real quickly. I'm not going to get into the details of them. We could, but I don't want to do that for time's sake because I want to get to the text and kind of move on here in chapter 4. But there's basically three different opinions or beliefs concerning the believer's sanctification. And the first group is we have those who believe that sanctification is something one does on his own in his own power, and which contributes to his salvation. That's more of an Arminian point of view. It helps in his salvation. It contributes to it. But the only problem with that one, and there's probably more than one problem with that one, is this idea of sanctification is not only unbiblical, but it extends only to the outward, the temporal habits. It can't glorify God. And people can do that. You know, people, the flesh can get really religious. Oh, it can lay down a lot of things. It can stop smoking, stop drinking, turn off the TV. I remember one time in our church in Germany when we were, uh, first few years as a Christian, we had a pastor there. And he put in the back of the uh, church, and I think I've mentioned it before, he put a chart up there and everybody's name on it. And then it was each day of the month of March or September or whatever it might be. And you would put a star next to your name every day you didn't watch television. So people could come in and say, oh, Brother John ain't watched television for 10 days. Oh, Brother Jeff's only watched it for two days. For them, that was a type of spirituality. It's temporal. I do away with a few outward things. Why people believe if you try to work something inward by doing something outward uh, it confounds me. 
You can remove every temptation you want, live on a monk on a hill. That will not alone sanctify you. That's why we'll get to 23 when he said the renewing of your mind, the spirit of your mind. Not renewing of your mind, but renewing of the spirit of your mind. You've got to want it. You've got to desire it. It's got to be inward longing and desire, yearning for that. You can get rid of everything outwardly. It does not make you more spiritual. It does not make you more of a Christian. Ask the monks. Most of the monks in Germany separate themselves up on a hill or in a, somewhere in a monastery, brew their own beer, and have a good time. Doesn't make you spiritual. It's an hour change of habits for this first group. I just change things outwardly. That's sanctification. I just stop doing them. Yet there's no renewing of the mind. There's no change of heart or inward desires. It's taught of men by man, not of Christ. That's the first group. They believe man is does it in his own power, and it contributes to his salvation. The second group, which is just as unbiblical as the first, and there's a lot more of these probably, are those who believe that Christ has done all things for our sanctification, that there remains nothing for us to do. Christ has done it all. We just need to sit back, let go, and let God. Give it over to God. There's a group of them now in this in, in America that's growing rapidly called Free Gracers. I don't know if you heard about it. But Free Gracers, where they say, you don't have to repent. Repent for what? All your sins are forgiven. You don't have to strive to enter at the straight gate. What do you want to do? If Christ has completed everything for you. Yeah, they'll admit they still sin, but you know you just need to you know trust in God's mercy and grace because He's forgiven you all of that. You need to f- confess your sins because they're all forgiven already. They see no no need to confess or repent because God's grace has forever removed such a need. Therefore, you simply need to rest in God's grace. Problem with that is it leads those people to a life to sin that they and uh, complacency almost like Jude where they turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. They'll admit they still sin, but uh, it's all covered. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter how I live. So they can curse. They can do this. They can do that. Oh, they'll admit you shouldn't. But they still have a liberty to sin. That's not sanctification either. And thirdly, true biblical sanctification are those true believers who have been taught of Christ the great significance and blessings which come from sanctification. And they long and they desire to be holy. The desire God has placed in them, the longing the Spirit of God has placed in them, Christ has taught them. And so they work from the inward out not from the outward in. This was the problem with Wesley's group of holiness. I don't know if you've read anything about the history of that, where one man committed suicide because he could not maintain the level of holiness he thought Scripture desired of him. The holiness movement that he had. You see, at salvation, Christ imparts unto us a desire to be more like him. And we work from the inward to the out. Concerning the first group, they eventually grow weary and fall away. 
from their vain profession of faith to think that they're the ones that have to do it. They, they grow weary of that. They get tired of it. Oh, I've seen so many Christians, professing Christians, excuse me, who started out with such a zeal and they love God. And then they, they just got weary of it. And it was like, I'm tired of trying to live this Christian life. It's too hard. It's too difficult. Forget this. And they go back to the world. They get tired of it. They get weary of it. For without the renewing of the mind, they succumb to sin's power. Eventually, sin will overpower them. And all their outward mortification, all their outward doing away with things, they get weary of it. The second group becomes slaves to their own corrupt and sinful lust. Many turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness while excusing and permitting their heart and minds to revel in their sins. The third group, though, those who have been taught by Christ find great hope and encouragement in sanctification. They love it. They desire it. They long for it. And know personally the great joys and comfort which come from putting off the old man and putting on the new. That's what Christ teaches here. He says, what does Christ teach? Put off the old man. That you put off concerning the former conversation, the old man which is corrupt according to deceitful lust. What true believer is not acquainted with that old man, like I said last week? Which of us, if we're truly saved, which of us know little about this old man? Oh, we despise him. Paul said, I have no confidence in the flesh. Christ imparts to the believer a new mind, but a mind that desires holiness and righteousness. That's what he says in verse 24. That's the new man. It's created in righteousness and true holiness. We despise the old man. We despise the lust. And these three verses, 22, 23, and 24, beloved, they've got to be understood in their entirety. For there cannot be a putting off without a putting on. You following me? You can't simply put off. That's not enough. You've got to put on. And we can't do that without renewing of the spirit of our minds. So all three of these verses need to be seen and understood in their entirety. Even though we might look at them individually, we need to understand them in their entirety because you can't put off without putting on okay what's the first thing Christ teaches us he says put off that former conversation beloved those who have been taught of Christ know very well like I said this old man and his corrupting deceitful lust we're very acquainted with him for it was in the glorious light of Christ's grace and love which exposed this old man to us. See the difference? We were well at home with this old man. Remember, Paul says earlier, you walked as the, you know, as the world walked. We enjoyed it. We loved it. We lived in it. That was our life. What revealed to us this old man and his vileness? But the grace and mercy of Christ. Our old hymns express this clearly. Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. We were talking yesterday about, and you was writing as well this morning in your email about how people's eyes need to be opened, their hearts need to be renewed, they need to see. Well, what's the first thing they need to see? The corruption. 
their sinfulness. That's why we know this old man and that's why we despise and hate him. I hate the sins that made thee mourn and drove thee from my breast. We recognize the old man. We despise him in his lusts. Without our eyes being opened, without grace, that could never happen. And though they kind of change outwardly, they make outward conformity to religion. Their inward old man remains, the lusts, the corruptions. Oh, but when Christ comes into the heart, when Christ opens our eyes, mine, mine was the transgression. Wesley said, mine, mine. You ever sang that song and placed yourself in those verses? Mine, mine was the transgression, but thine the deadly pain. Now, only those who have been taught of Christ, those that have been born again, those who have received the grace of God, understand the depravity and the wickedness of the old man and despise and hate him. The putting off the old man, beloved, is no burden for the true believer. This isn't a burden for the true believer. Sanctification is not a burden for the true believer. You listen to a lot of people today and say, oh, you make it the way too straight and narrow. You're too conservative. You make Christianity a burden. The Christian sees sanctification not as a burden, but as a task, a work, which the Spirit of God stirs his heart unto, because he's been taught of Christ, how corrupt he is according to deceitful lust. And therefore, there is nothing the true believer desires more than to put him off and put him on the new man. Nothing we desire more than to put the old man off, put the new one on. And you, you, you can bear witness to me this morning if you're a Christian for very long. That old man rises his head up so often. And we want to put him off. We hate him. We despise him. Our conscience becomes convicted of it. We don't want nothing to do with him. And we hate him. We want to be more like Christ. It's God's grace that has revealed to us the depravity of the old man. That's why sinners won't come to Christ. They don't see themselves as they are before Christ until the grace of God sovereignly opens their eyes. We sang that hymn earlier. Lord Jesus, I long to be perfectly whole. I want thee forever to live in my soul. Break down every idol, cast out every foe. Now wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. There's another verse that's not in our hymn that says, Lord Jesus, let nothing unholy remain. Apply thine own blood and extract every stain. To get this blessed cleansing, I all things forego. Now wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Uh, does the believer play a role in sanctification? Oh, yes, he does. By the grace of God, he's motivated and inspired and renewed in the spirit of his mind. He wants to put off the old man. But do you ever wonder why or how we can put off the old man? It's amazing. Paul, in our text concerning what Christ teaches us, 
He doesn't say, like in Romans 6, the old man's been crucified with Christ. He didn't say crucify thee. He said put him off. Why did he say put him off? Well, because the old man's already been crucified. You follow me? Listen to me. If you want to enjoy the blessings of sanctification and long and desire for it and want to be whiter than snow, here's the key. You can put him off because he's been crucified. He's been crucified with Christ, Romans 6. Paul is simply saying, put him off. You know what you do when you put something off? It's like it's the, the references to a garment. You simply take it and you put it off. Paul says, put him off. <laughs> what a blessing that is. Put him off. Renounce your former habits and conduct of life. For they're corrupt according to deceitful lust. Put them off. Stop doing them. Colossians says, mortify ye therefore the deeds of your body. I like John Owen's works on that. I, li I like it because John, Owen, John Owens believed in the suffering grace of God, believe me. And yet in that whole work, he, he emphasizes the fact that the responsibility and duty is laid on us. Mortify ye. It's your job as a believer. Mortify them. We have an active role in sanctification. And it's one we should thoroughly enjoy doing. Put it off. Stop doing it. I've often wondered why I look at believers sometimes and they act the way they do and it doesn't trouble them. Professing believers. They can live wickedly. They can do terrible things, ungodly things, and it doesn't bother them. They continue doing them. And you wonder why, why do you do such a thing and you're called a Christian? Why doesn't it bother you? because they haven't been taught of Christ. I've been reading a, a book. There, there, I have a lot of books. And again, I encourage reading good spiritual, scriptural books. And um, But it's rare that... I don't, I, you probably understand me because you all read quite a few as well. You can read a lot of good books, but, but in God's providence, there always comes one book along sometime that you're reading, and it's just like, this is really the one I really needed now. If so, but this is, I've been reading William Perkins on the conscience. Amazing work he did on the conscience. And I never considered, I'm just going to throw this out here, I never considered the value of a conscience. Martin Luther said, he said, if a sinner listens to his conscience, he'd Turn to God. And he puts in there about God putting a conscience even in the center. And the conscience bears witness against him now. And if he does not turn to Christ, that con same conscience shall rise up against him at the bar, judgment bar of God. And he uses the verse that in the latter days at the judgment seat, their conscience shall bear witness. And he, and he, made, he made a profound statement I never thought about, but I, I've been considering and pondering it. He said the conscience follows us into eternity. And it will rise up against us at the judgment bar of God. And I thought, man, that changes a lot of how we should preach the gospel to sinners. God stirred their conscience. Every man has one. <laughs> when Christ saves us, our conscience led by the Holy Spirit. Why do you think later on he says, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God? What do you mean, grieve him not? Don't grieve him. He's talking about Christian fellowship and love. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. 
It's amazing that the Holy Spirit can be grieved. He's a person. When you grieve someone, it's like grieving someone and they go off into another room and uh, they close the door and you don't sense them. This is what David meant in Psalms when he said, take not the Holy Spirit from me. The Holy Spirit uses our conscience. Praise God for that. Put him off. Lay him down. Don't do that no more. Don't be proud of that. Get rid of the old conduct. Get rid of the old behavior. He's corrupt according to deceitful lust. Put him off. Some believe this to be a one-time act. Others believe that it must be continually done. Either way, there must also be a putting on of the new man if our putting off of the old man is to be successful. You can't lead a void. Whether it's a one-time thing or something we do all the time. It depends on who you read. <laughs> but Paul says, put him off. But he also says, but you got to put something on. And time doesn't avail me this morning. I'm really not trying to drag through this. I really just want to milk this dry because of the importance of it. And verses 25 to 32 go seemingly rapidly because they're just things he says that we should be doing actively duty-wise in our sanctification, but, but we will we'll not understand them until we understand 22, 23, and 24 and the significance of them because that's the foundation of it. Look at the beginning word, verse 25. Wherefore? Because of what I just said. You see, it's the foundation of it. If you understand about putting off the old man, putting on the new, and renewing of the spirit of your mind, then you can do these other things. But you got to understand that. So please bear with me, and I hope and pray I'm not lingering too long on this. But I want you to understand that you can't put off unless you put on. You can't leave a void. The putting off of corruption according to deceitful lust, Paul says, must be replaced by the righteousness and true holiness of the new man, which is created in Christ. Look with me at Will, and I'll kind of wind this down. Matthew chapter 12, I'll give you an illustration. The Lord gives us an illustration of leaving that void. If you take off or put off the old man, you've got to put on the new man. Otherwise, it's not going to be successful. Matthew chapter 12, verse 43. Talking about an unclean spirit. Listen to what he says here. Matthew twelve forty three. When the unclean spirit has gone out of man, he walketh through dry places, seeking rest, and findeth none. Then he saith, I will return into my house from whence I came out, and when he is come, he findeth it empty, swept, and garnished. What's he talking about? Somebody being religious. Oh, I've cleaned up my life. I stopped drinking, smoking, doing all these things. He's cleaned up his life. But nothing has filled that void. You see? You can't put off without putting on. He said, listen, he came back and he found it empty, swept and garnished. Oh, it's religion in a wrong way. Then goeth he and taketh with himself seven other spirits more with than himself, and they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Even so shall it also be into this wicked generation. You see, that's what happens when you don't fill the void. You clean house, it's clean, but you didn't feel anything. A Christian not only desires to put off the old man, he more so desires to put on the new. You can't leave it void. I have sadly seen for too many years, too many people over the years, who have emptied and swept and garnished their souls with a vain profession of faith. 
yet because it was not filled with Christ, their last state was worse than their first. Have you ever witnessed that? You ever seen people like that? I'm always weary of somebody who professes Christianity and runs a thousand miles an hour. It's hard to it's hard to contain a young believer's zeal, I agree, but it worries me. And like I said earlier, I always thought as a Christian, man, if I make it past the first five years, first I remember the first year I was saved, I thought, man, I look at the older Christians and I think, man, if I could if I could make it to ten Maybe 15 years as a Christian, I can probably have more victory in my life. You have to endure to the end. And it's God that gives us that, yes, if we've been taught of Christ. But the fight, the struggle, the striving for sanctification never ends in this life, beloved. It never ends. Embrace it. See it as being a, an act of God's grace in our hearts and our lives, conforming us more and more into His image. Is that not what we desire? How many times in, in our Christian life have we felt days to where we felt the presence of God so near and so real and so wonderful? We thought, man, like Peter, if I could just build a tabernacle right here and praise God, this is the best. And then there's been days we felt so low and down that we thought we'd done nothing right for Christ who feels so far away. And we yearn and long for his presence. So the psalmist, my soul panteth after God. My soul thirsteth after God. Thank God for sanctification. Verse 23 is the very heart, the very, the very part of this, the very key to our putting off the old man and putting on the new, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Renewed in the spirit of your mind. Time doesn't avail me, and I'm just going to hit this briefly next week and move on to verse 25, but this 25th verse or 23rd verse is the key. It's the very heart of 20, 22 and 24, renewing of your mind. In other words, renewing the spirit of your mind. In other words, it's an inward longing and desire. Renew that spirit of the mind. You want to, you long to, you strive for it. Like the song we sang last week with John Newton, that I asked the Lord that he would cleanse me and make me whole and draw me closer. And we go through the song and he says, but God revealed more of my sins. And he said, why, why would you do that? Oh, this is how I show you my grace, and my mercy. You ever wonder why the saints of old when you read many times about their lives, how the saints of old, after so many years, would long and yearn for eternity, for home. Sanctification kept them going. Paul says, I've fought my fight. I've finished my course. Sanctification can be the greatest blessing for a believer. Nothing assures us of our divine election more than our sanctification. And nothing gives us such a comfort and joy in this life than as God enables us to get victory more and more over the old man. The old man perishes. The new man is renewed day and day. Sanctification. It's a blessing. May God give us grace to ever exercise it.
Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for your blessings upon us. We thank you, Lord, for Lord Ephesians 4. We thank you, Lord, for showing and revealing unto us the blessed truth about sanctification. Help us, we pray, to ever learn of Christ. Help us, Lord, by your spirit and by your grace to put off the old man, Lord, and put on the new. Renew the spirit of our mind that we might long and yearn for it. And, Father, we might listen to the exhortations of Paul as he goes through this list that, Lord, we can practice these things in our lives. Father, we pray that you'd be honored and glorified in all that we say and do. What's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.